Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I am happy to welcome Ryan Geelan today on the show. Ryan is a film director who has an eclectic background in uh, short films, uh, documentary short stories, feature films, and his most recent production, My Beautiful Stutter, which chronicles five young individuals spanning in age at the camp run by SAY, which is the Stuttering Association for the Young. And this project took Ryan uh, upwards of seven years to complete. Um, If you haven't had a chance yet to see it, I highly recommend it. Right now here in the U.S., My Beautiful Stutter, the documentary, is streaming on Discovery+. Plus. The film My Beautiful Stutter is executive produced by Paul Rudd, Mariska Hargitay, Peter Herman, George Springer, and Patrick James Lynch. Just a quick note before we get into this interview, I my background is not in stuttering or fluency disorders. I have very little experience in this area, so just keep that in mind as I have this conversation, and let's get into it. Tell me about the genesis of this. I, you know, I've looked up on your IMD page just to see what kinds of projects you've done in the past, and you have a very eclectic background. I see you've done you've done some like feature films, you'll, some comedies, uh, The Graduates. I saw um, some dramas. How did this come about? So yeah, I, I'm not a person who stutters. Um, I'm just an independent filmmaker, and um, I have spent a lot of my adult life working with young people, working on behalf of young people. Uh, either through creating content for um, young people in the bleeding disorders community or in rare disease communities. Our agency, Believe Limited, is very focused on rare and chronic conditions and creating powerful educational material for, for those audiences, especially material aimed at young people. Um, I was a camp counselor forever. I, I ran a film camp in New York City that I, I actually started, uh, ran that for four or five years, uh, taught after school programs for young people. So I just have I have a soft spot uh, in my heart for the, the psychosocial journeys of young people. Mm. And I have witnessed, you know, outside of stuttering, how difficult we make life for young people, especially anybody who could be deemed, you know, quote unquote different. Um, and so when I, my producer, Michael Alden, who produced the King's speech on Broadway and on the West end, he did the play. He had seen a couple of the films that I had made and invited me to come to the 2014 Say Gala. And he said, there may be a film in it. Why don't you come with me? We'll talk about it after. And I'll never forget the Say Gala. You get a hint of it in the film. You get you know pieces of it. But you walk in, it's gorgeous Lower West Side Auditorium on NYU's campus. Um, everybody's dressed to the nines, dressed beautifully, big fundraiser. 500 people all sit down, the lights go down, there's a single spotlight on stage. And into that single spotlight walks an eight-year-old boy. And he's got on his little gray suit, little blue tie, his hair is, you know, cut and gelled and, you know, just adorable. He's clutching a piece of paper and he goes to center stage all by himself. And he reads from the paper, thank you for coming to the 2014 Say Gala. But it took him 15 or 20 seconds to say it Hmm. because he was stuttering. And when he was done, he froze and he looked out and there was silence. And I realized later he was waiting for laughter. He was waiting to hear uh, snickering. He was waiting to hear people making fun of what he had just done. 
But instead, after a few seconds of silence, standing ovation. And in that moment, he grew a foot. In that moment, his shoulders rolled back. He was glowing. He floated off stage. And later, you know, I put it together. He realized in that moment that everything that Taro Alexander at Say or everything the other mentors at Say had told him was true, that his voice, when he stutters, when he speaks as himself, his voice is beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's worthy of being heard. And, you know, the rest of that night, there were incredibly powerful stories, just like the, the ones you hear in the film. And I left really, really fired up. I left so angry that we continue to build a world like this for young people, mm-hmm. that we continue to hobble the, the ability of young people just because they may be quote unquote different in some way. Yeah. Whether it's a physical difference, a mental difference, an emotional difference, a verbal difference, we are still, you know, this is 2014. It's true now, just like it was then. We've created a world that lacks empathy. And that that's that's criminal and wrong and just terrible. And so I, I left very fired up and committed basically that night to to spend whatever time and money it took to make something to help. And this was a long-term project. You chronicled the lives of, what, five campers, uh, I believe, was it the 2015 year? The summer of 2015, was that correct? Yeah, so so it took about a year to get Say's blessing to film and to find a little money to start. Mm-hmm. And so we started filming a year later at the gala in 2015, and then filmed for two years, edited for two years, spent two years you know, up till this, up to today, basically screening the film in film festivals and with various anti-bullying organizations all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a six year process from the time we started to today. That's incredible. Uh, it, it's quite an accomplishment when you think about it. I couldn't even, I don't know what the, what the uh, world is like for film finance and distribution. I, I'm just imagining it's uh, it's a tough go. Um, especially for anyone small and independent and, you know, bootstrapping yourself and finding, you know, the means to keep going. I'm sure you hit all sorts of roadblocks. You know, I, I'm wondering too, I looked at it as I was watching the the film, I I kept wondering, did the story, I should say the story, did the, the focus, did, okay, let me back up. Did you know what the focus was going to be going into it? Did you have an idea of the kind of story you wanted to tell? Did it change throughout the uh, filmmaking process? Did it change post-production? That's a, that's a fantastic question. So to, to your earlier point, it was very hard as an independent filmmaker to find enough money to make something that is commercially viable. Anybody can go out and film and make something, put it out. But unless you have money to support a lot of travel, a lot of editing, a lot of sound mix, color correction, film festival. You're, you're basically going out of pocket. And so I was able to put together a little bit of money on and off for, for basically the last six years to get things done. But about 90% of this was completely out of pocket. What that means to your second question, what that means is that in, in a kind of a good way, I had a lot of time to make the film because nobody was breathing down my neck. There was no release date. There was no delivery date. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed me to film over a long period of time. And, and yes, over the, the course of filming and then again over the course of editing, the story really took shape. But going into it, 
I just knew I wanted to meet a lot of young people who are going into say, or who have been involved in say programs to, to learn about their journeys. I got very lucky that one of the main characters out of five, I was catching at the beginning of their journey. And that's Malcolm, the youngest main mm-hmm. character from new Orleans, all of the other characters, this is difficult as a documentary filmmaker, all the other characters had already started on their say journey. So mm-hmm. I'm hearing a lot about their arc and about the challenges they face now. Say, help them. But Malcolm was really the only one that I was able to catch and interview and meet and go down and experience his life in New Orleans prior to him engaging with Say in any way. So you got to see his transformation live over the course of a couple of years. Yeah. And Malcolm was the boy who had just uh, witnessed horrific events in his uh, early childhood. Um, he's befriended by Will. Correct. The uh, older, now a college student, I think, at Georgetown. Is that correct? Now graduated. That's how long I was oh, in Now my graduated. God. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah. So, no, that's great. I, you know, just seeing all the friendships and the support they gave each other during the whole process was something. And I, I think it's kind of special that this was, that Terrell Alexander has a, a theater and performing arts background. And that is a kind of a feature, a main feature of the camp. Uh, to allow these these youngsters the opportunity to open up in ways they perhaps wouldn't have um, in just a traditional camp. You know, this has the the all the things that a traditional camp has: sports, um, you know, evening sing songs and things like that. All the kinds of things you would see. But of course, there's a, a strong theatrical. I was I was watching during your documentary some poetry, acting out scenes of bullying from uh, from younger uh, their younger ages. It was, uh, I, you know, I almost get the sense that that was half of the program. I don't, I don't know. Would you say that's true or? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the master strokes of, of the camp structure that Taro and Say have built is that the premise for young people is it's just like any other great sleepaway camp that, that you've heard about or seen or would think about. There's horseback riding, there's zip line, swimming, basketball, a whole day of sports competitions, art classes, writing classes, tons of outdoor time and, and bonding. And it's all there, but the wrapping around it, you know, the structure, the scaffolding that it's built on is that no matter what, you will have as much time as you need to speak. And every other camper there will be someone who stutters or has a similar disfluency, but, but predominantly stutters. And that's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And a very, a very safe space for the kids. Um, I, you know, I noticed that um, there was one speech pathologist uh, featured in this film uh, on site at the camp. And I was just wondering what the role of the speech pathologist is during the camp process. Is he providing therapy? Is he there more in a support role? That's a great question. So my understanding of when we filmed six years ago and, and five years ago is that parents can request uh, a continuation or continuity of spe- speech language pathology if their child is currently doing it. The, the, the SLPs are there to, to provide continuity of some kind mm. if the parents request it because they don't want to just isolate the kids if that is something that gives the kids some strength and, and a, some strong foundation and consistency. That's my, that was my impression at the time. Um, I don't know how it's currently structured. Yeah. I just know that camp is expanding. Now they have, they still do the two weeks. They do it in upstate New York, but they also have regional camps 
for long three-day weekends kind of all over the country. And I think Uh now that COVID is, knock on wood, winding down, I think they're going to pick those back up. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a good idea. I hope things get uh, back toward about as normal as possible for uh, this summer going into it. Yeah. Um, You know, I was also struck there was, I I can't remember if it was a main, I think it was, it wasn't one of the main characters, but there was a kid who said something very interesting about his uh, speech therapy. He basically said, I don't want speech anymore. This is who I am. Um, you know, it made me think that I suppose that we need to be sensitive to this fact as speech pathologists about our role as therapists and what the clients want. You know, the, the, just to know that there is this, there are, I'm sure there's people out there who just, again, the, the title of the film is stuttering is beautiful. Uh, acceptance is key. And then the question is, what role does therapy have uh, in the process? I'm guessing that in some cases it is more therapeutic and in some cases it's just more of a supportive role. Um, it, do, I'm just wondering if from your you know several years of filming, have you, have you found kind of a consensus of opinion or has it been pretty diverse in terms of their, you know, these folks uh, view of the therapy process and where they are? So I, I've done about 225 screenings in the last two years. Half of those were in person, half now virtual. Half of them have been with SLP groups. So either ASHA-affiliated groups or teachers in a school district or NISLA groups. And I, I always try to make the point to SLPs that I'm just speaking from my point of view. After interviewing and meeting and being around kids who stutter, their families, um, and hearing their sort of unfiltered perspectives. The thing that comes back to me most and the image that I try to, to talk about the most is when a young person who stutters wakes up in the morning, let's say their home life is comfortable and supportive. The minute they walk out their front door, the armor goes on. Mm-hmm. And that armor is on there to help them get through an incredibly stressful physically and mentally and emotionally intense experience of being out in the real world and and having to think about where your tongue goes, think about your breath, try not to be teased. If you are bullied, get away from this person. The armor goes up and it doesn't come down until they walk back in the front door. If the home life is difficult, the armor goes up the minute the child wakes up in the morning and it doesn't come down until their door closes, the lights go out and they get back in bed at the end of the night. It's an incredibly stressful, difficult way to live. And the challenge, the question, the image that I talk about with SLPs is, I would, I think you should ask yourself, how do I make my practice, my 45 minutes or hour that I get with this kid a couple times a month, a place where the armor can come down? Mm-hmm. If that is the starting point and that is the prism through which you, you focus on every interaction with that child, then at the very least, you might be, you have the potential to be the one adult in that person's life, in that young person's life letting them know that if you never become 1% more fluent, you are still worthy of love. You are still worthy of friendship. You are still worthy of joy. You are still worthy of feeling safe and wanting to come to school. And and that's a tough role for an SLP because a lot of times you have parents asking you, why isn't my kid more fluent? You have teachers asking, why isn't my student more fluent? But SLPs are are by nature so empathetic and kind and, and hardworking that, that I think that's an opportunity. I think there is an opportunity to make your experience with that young person the, a place where the armor comes down. I was talking to Taro from the film 
the founder of, so I was talking to him last week and I gave him this analogy. He said, he said, he really dug that analogy and then he, he built on it. He said, this is what I talk about. And what he talks about is if possible, don't even talk about the stuttering for the first six months. Don't make notes. Don't write down what, you know, make a little note about what they, what word they stutter on or what sound they stutter on, where the block comes or the elongation. He said, just sit and talk for six months. Mm-hmm. What is your life like? To let that young person know that they can trust you with their emotions and that you, if no other adult in the world will do this for them, you will, you will let them feel safe and that they have all the time they need to speak and then start talking about goals. That's very interesting. You, it, it reminds me, I don't have my, my wheelhouse is not in stuttering or fluency disorders, but as a graduate student, I remember working with a then 20 year old, um, young man in the armed services, um, who had a significant stutter who came from a horrific background. And I remember that for virtually the entire time that I worked with him, 90% was, I would say, psychosocial support and just talking about his experiences, what it was like growing up, what it was like dealing with it. And there was a time, I think, that I felt guilty about that, that I wasn't giving him value. But at the same time, I think I had an instinct that there was just no other way that had I jumped right into, okay, we got to get right to work. We got to do some therapy here. Had I done that, it just would have gone nowhere. So I I think that's a really good point that you bring up. Um, And I think that's a wonderful example to think about too, because even if it feels like a heightened example, right? Like it's so instructive because what you instinctively knew was, or thought about was how many other people every single day in this person's life are reflecting his challenges back to him and trying to say, breathe slower, speak slower. What? I didn't hear you. Try that again. How much of that is coming at that person Mm -hmm. every single day? And then they walk into your office. Are you going to give them more of that? Are you going to give them a break from that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, it's a good point. Um, I wanted to ask you, so through this multi-year process, what was the single greatest challenge you had in the whole process? Was it financial? Was it, you know, I was even thinking, um, finding these five individuals who would give, who would be generous with their time and open themselves up to the public. Um, where was, where was the, the great challenge for this? Um, what was it in the storytelling? Was it in trying to, uh, maybe pivot, uh, during the filmmaking process and uh, having to alter um, the perspectives? I don't know. That's a great question. So I, I didn't go in picking from the beginning who I was going to follow. I started out meeting and interviewing and learning about 20, 30, 40 different young people just trying to film all of what Say was doing. So they they're based in New York City and they do weekend workshops. They do weeknight workshops. They do, you know, three month workshops leading up to a play. They they do all these different programs, and then they do the camp. and And I just went in and just tried to capture as much as I could. And slowly on a on any given day, I'd start to like pay attention to these three young people or these four young people. And through hearing them talk, you know, 
regardless of a dis, any disfluency, as a filmmaker, you get a sense for who's a good storyteller. Like you meet Sarah from the film in real life and you know instantly this is a fun person to be around. Oh yeah. Like I want to hear her stories. She's hilarious. She's so smart. Like you just know. So that's kind of what you look for. And that has nothing to do with fluency or disfluency. Mm -hmm. So over the course of time, that that wasn't the biggest challenge. That was actually part of the fun and part of the process that you anticipate. Yes, the biggest challenge was money. But here's why that's interesting. It's not a reflection of people having tight pockets or not wanting to fund content. It's not that. It's a lack of awareness. People don't know that this is a critical part of a young person's psychosocial well-being. So they're not going to loosen up money to support it. If I just said I'm making an anti-bullying film, I would have had an easier time finding money than saying I'm making a movie about kids who stutter. Because for the vast majority of people, kids who stutter are just kind of, you know, kids who who speak in kind of a cute, funny way and they'll figure it out. Mm, That's the extent to which people have empathy for it right now because there's such a lack of awareness. And that lack of empathy also translates into a lack of funding for something like what I was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I come back to that a lot because I think it takes a film like this to enable other films like this to get made. Yeah. You know, like the dam has to, to break, but it just starts with like one little rock falling out from the dam and then the water starts to come through and then more cracks show. And so I, I think if we fast forward two, three, five, ten years, there there will be more money and more material, more money for material like this and more material like this. But it just didn't exist seven years ago when I went to the first get- Say Gala. It doesn't exist today other yeah. than this film because people don't know how serious this is. Mm-hmm. So you, so really, it's a lack of vision um, on the part of would-be um, funders. And you have to make the movie yourself to kind of show them, here is, this is what I'm talking about. Um, that was the a good point. The simplest equation is awareness equals empathy. Yeah. You cannot become educated or even aware of what it means to be a kid who stutters and then not have empathy. It's like human nature is the more aware you become, even of a few small details mm-hmm. about what it means to be a kid who stutters, the more empathy you will have. Mm-hmm. That will translate into funding for people who want to do projects like this down the road. If we can increase awareness, no matter what, we automatically increase empathy. Yeah. That's the math. And it, that math holds. So now that this has been streaming, you've had uh, screenings throughout the country. Um, I'm just curious, is this also streaming or being shown worldwide? Yeah. So Discovery Plus, the new app from Discovery Channel, is exclusive in the United States Mm -hmm. uh, all the way through mid-September. And then it'll be on iTunes, Amazon, DVD, TV on demand, all these other places. But worldwide today, anywhere in the world, you can watch this film by going to Vimeo. If oh, it's on to, Vimeo. Okay. Yeah. If you go to Vimeo and type in My Beautiful Stutter, you'll be taken to the on-demand page. You can buy, you can mm-hmm. rent uh, anywhere in the world. And we have subtitles, multiple versions of Spanish subtitles. We have English captions. We have Japanese subtitles, Russian subtitles. We have more subtitles coming in from volunteers all over the world. Mm-hmm. So over the course of the next few weeks, it, it should not only be available everywhere, but also subtitled for everywhere. Oh, nice to hear. Okay. Well, Ryan, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time and I wish you lots of luck with the uh, distribution, the continued distribution of this and hope uh, more eyes get to see it. 
Um, before I let you go, can you talk about your latest project? I saw something on your website. You can talk about what your your next uh, project looks like. Yeah, so my, my producing partners and I just released a, a film called Bombardier Blood about the first person with severe hemophilia to summit Mount Everest. We actually followed him in his training. We followed him all over the world as he met people in developing countries who are suffering from hemophilia and don't have access to critical life-saving medicine. And then we followed him as he summited Mount Everest and the other six summits. So the seven summits are the tallest peak on each continent. So he summited all those. We went with him and, and you know, through his work, he raised a tremendous amount of money and awareness for um, uh, people all over the world with hemophilia and severe hemophilia like his. Just a very inspiring story. Also uh, available now on uh, Vimeo and, um, you know, iTunes everywhere, Amazon. Oh, so that's out. I thought it was still in production. Okay. Awesome. Really great to hear. Well, again, thanks for being on the show and uh, lots of luck. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right, Ryan. Thank you so much again for being on the show. Again, for those of you who missed it, the film, My Beautiful Stutter, can be found on Discovery Plus, currently playing. It is April 2021 as I record this. You can also find My Beautiful Stutter on Vimeo, and I'm sure on iTunes very soon, and I'm sure wherever else you can find uh, short films, documentaries, things of that sort. Okay. Thanks again so much for listening today. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can send them all my way, jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. I say this once in a while, but if you ever have the chance to, iTunes store, please rate the podcast. I'd be most appreciative. I had racked up a number of reviews, and for those of you following the show, you'll remember that my show was delisted temporarily, and with that, I lost all my reviews, had to start from scratch, subscribers and such, so kind of uh, building that back up. Okay, so again, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you all next time.